The year is 1970. The average movie ticket cost $1.55. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty goes into effect after ratification by 43 nations. The crew of Apollo 13 successfully splashes down the Pacific Ocean. The Boeing 747 makes its first commercial flight as the world's first jumbo jet. The Chicago 7 defendants are found guilty of intent to incite a riot. And Paul McCartney announces that the Beatles have disbanded. The hot movies of the year include The Aristocats, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, The Life of Sherlock Holmes, Scrooge, and today's film, The Red Circle. The hot albums of the year include After the Gold Rush, Let It Be, Led Zeppelin III, All Things Must Pass, American Beauty, and today's album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. So, Dad, who made this album? Tell me about it. All right. Welcome, Simon, to this episode of Reels and Revolutions. And Bridge Over Troubled Water, of course, by the duo Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, This uh, album was actually released in January of 1970, and it was the final album of the duo. Uh, Produced by a gentleman by the name of Roy Haley, who also worked uh, with Bob Dylan, The Love and Spoonful, The Yardbirds, The Birds, and then a little later on with Journey, amongst other artists. He also worked with Paul Simon on his first solo record, as well as with him on the albums Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints. So obviously Paul Simon really liked working with his producer. Uh, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water won Grammys. The album won Grammys for Album of the Year and Best Engineered Album. The title song won Grammys for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Contemporary Song of the Year, and Instrumental Arrangement of the Year. So a big, big winner at the Grammys. Reviews at the time were actually quite mixed. Uh, Melody Maker magazine wrote, There are dull moments, but they are worth endearing for the jewels that surround them. And on the latest Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest albums ever recorded, It's ranked at number 172. So should we just jump into the songs? Well, first got to talk about the album cover. Oh, that's right, the album cover. Uh, And this is kind Uh, of a classic album cover, I think, in many ways. It is. Uh, At least from the perspective of uh, kind of we tend to joke a lot about, man, Archon Funkel's really tall. No, he's not tall. I found that out. Fairly recently, Paul Simon is just really short. He is, <laughs> I think, 5'3", um, and Garfunkel's like 5'10", or something. Um, so he's he's an average height gentleman. But although in the photo he does have kind of the big fro kind of hair. Yeah. Uh, and if, if you're not familiar with the album, it's kind of a washed-out photograph uh, with uh, – Paul Simon standing directly in front of Art Garfunkel to the point where you don't see kind of the lower half of Garfunkel's face. Yeah, they're like walking down a street, I guess. Um, it's Yeah, it's really grainy. Right. It's, it's just a very simple, just like they're like walking on a street. Outside it's cold. They're wearing like coats. There's a lot of brown the tones yeah. to it. I mean, it, it like grainy is probably the best best description. Uh, uh, Paul Simon's got 
Probably a somewhat unflattering haircut. Yeah, Paul Simon <laughs> never has good hair. Yeah. Like, all of the old photos of him, he never has good hair. Yeah, I I, I wrote that he his hair is like a surf, like a, like a medieval surf, <laughs> yeah. kind of. He's got kind of the bowl-cut bangs at the top, yeah. and then it just stri- straight down curtains of hair on the side. And he's wearing just all shades of brown, a brown kind of... I don't know what it is, a, a cardigan or something with a brown shirt and then a brown plaid um, uh, scarf around his neck. And it's it's not a bad picture. I mean, the way we describe it, oh, it's kind of ugly. I think it's, it's, it's somewhat evocative of the duo. Uh, Paul Simon's not looking at the camera. Art Garfunkel is. It's very simple. Yeah, it's fine. I, it's just fine. And it's iconic just because the album's iconic. Yeah, and I don't... It's kind of odd that they picked this as the album cover. I mean, it doesn't really have any. The image to me doesn't relate at all to the, to the song or the title of the song, um, but maybe they were just looking for something straightforward. Here we are. Simon yeah, I, I don't know if like there is not a Simon and Garfunkel album cover that I like am like particularly impressed by. I don't. They probably just didn't really care that much about the album cover. Maybe They're, they didn't. I don't know. Well, maybe Paul Simon wasn't much into Im- the his image. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, but it's a fine album. It's fine. Cover. It, it it's it it's again it 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 has that kind of old f- photograph feel of the '60s and the early '70s. But yeah. uh, to me, I mean, it's iconic. Like I think you're right because most people have seen this picture because they've seen the album. Yeah, and it is very urban looking to me, which they like, you know, Paul Simon's a New Yorker. I'm assuming Garfunkel is too. I think they might have even grown up together. Yeah, I believe um, they did. And so, like, in all his songs, and there are some songs in this that particularly talk about New York. And right. so I, I think it. that's what I get too. It does have a good sense of it being this urban New York. And setting. yeah, maybe fall or winter in 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 the city somewhere. Um, I I wouldn't say it stands out as like oh this is one of the great album covers of of all time, no. uh, but it is an image that once you've seen it, you kind of have it locked in your head, and, and particularly because it does kind of continue that myth that Art Garfunkel is like this giant. Yeah, he's <laughs> really not. It's just that Paul Simon is incredibly short for for the average man. Yeah, well, he he makes up for it. Yeah, in, his, <laughs> in, in the his song, songs. right. Um, but let's just jump in. Yeah, so we'll jump in. The, the first song is the title song. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have to say, this somewhat surprised me, that the album kicks off with A Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, I, for whatever reason, I would have thought that this would be maybe the closer on side one or the opener of side two it wouldn't be boom here's the the magnum opus of the album uh, right away uh, but that being said it's a classic you know the, there's not much more to say other than it's a beautiful song everyone talks about garfunkel's angelic voice yeah the flawless vocals um and you can see why it won grammys for production yeah yeah, it was surprising that it 
was the first song. I wouldn't have put it as the first Me neither. Song. I would have tried to build up a little bit because in some ways it's kind of all downhill from here. <laughs> I um, totally agree. There are some uh, really good songs too. Uh, but but yeah, it is like it starts off with the best song. And, and you know, I put that because of the way it's produced, you know, it starts off really simple and then it builds, uh, you know, the piano gets more intense. You get the more intense mm-hmm. vocals. The reverb comes in, the cymbals, the drum, the bass. I mean, it builds and builds to this huge cres- crescendo that, to me, this should have been the last song on the album. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I do, I think, have a tendency to like quieter songs for the last song. But I think this song could have worked, too. And... It's and, it is quite like that's another thing about it. In some of these songs, I was like, "What is the mix?" It's like too quiet at the beginning. I definitely think this song. Like I have to like crank up the volume yeah. so I can hear it. Um, and I I think yeah maybe the like mix is like too low. That's some the problem that I've thought about for a while. And and th- there's a I'd say this kind of sets up a little bit of a theme for the whole album for me. You're right. It it begins. At the highest of the heights, and you're you can only be let down for from the, for the rest <laughs> of the album. I mean, there are some great songs, and we'll talk about those, but there aren't any as good as this. And I feel like you know they went all in on the production with this song, and then they tried to match it with some of the other songs. And I, mm. I get the sense that in this is probably going to sound blasphemous, but a lot of the songs later, I think, are overproduced. I think they throw too much stuff in there, maybe trying to match the epicness of this particular song. Yeah. And it, it, it deters from the, these other songs and from the album as a whole to me. It could be a. I think it would have maybe worked better if this song wasn't first. Like, if, and then they wouldn't have to try to match it. Maybe they could just build up to the song. This and is I, the climax of the album, and then it the album ends, but it yeah, starts with know, the climax. And I don't have any idea of what order they recorded the songs, but again, it's it seems like an odd decision to put this song first because it's so powerful. Uh, and uh, again, there's probably a million other people that have spoke better about this song than I can. Um, I mean, it is to use a cliche; it's an instant classic. Everyone knows it. Uh, you know, there are components of it that you can't help but want to sing along with. Um, mm. The melody is beautiful, and it just has that huge, huge, huge crashing sound to it at the end. Uh, it is a fantastic song, and uh, you know if Paul Simon had just written this one song, and obviously he gave it to Art Garfunkel. Yeah, and that's something that I've read about how he Paul Simon kind of how you know it's 
to him, you know, it's his song. He wrote it, but Garfunkel kind of gets the attention for it because he sings it. Uh, but it's and and on the like every. I mean, I do think it is a classic. It's a it's an incredible song, but I'm not sure actually how much people know it. Young people, uh, like how much people young oh. people my age, people younger than me, that like how because it's not like. It's not as big of a song as it's like, like uh, "Hey Jude" or something, or "Satisfaction" by the Rolling Stones or something like that. You're right, and it's a it's a quieter song. It's not as, I mean, Simon and Garfunkel. From my experience of talking to people, uh, my peers, people don't really know Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, they know like a song, maybe like like "Sound of Silence," but that, the, they know "Sound of Silence" mainly maybe because it's a meme. of memes. It's a meme song so that's possibly reason but like people don't know i don't think would know simon and garfunkel not that many people my age know simon and garfunkel by name well and i mean they're not really a rock band in the sense that you know the beatles the rolling stones you know the the other biggies of the 60s and uh, you know kind of obviously somewhat famously people negatively or one particular author negatively compared Paul Simon to Bob Dylan uh, uh, you know a number of a, a year or so ago when 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 um when Paul Simon sold his his music rights to to you know a big publishing company or something um so it, it people don't tend to put Paul Simon or Simon and Garfunkel in the same category although I personally, from a songwriter perspective and even from a performer perspective, would put them there. The reality is, is I think Paul Simon's solo work is better than his work yeah. with Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I, I agree. With, I, I do think I like Simon and Garfunkel is great, but Paul Simon's solo work is better. I think he just has more high quality songs. And I, I do think Paul Simon, like I don't really think of him in the same category as like all like other 60s like the beatles or the rock groups yeah but i do think he's like one of the greatest songwriters i think he's up there with paul mccartney with people would say dylan and and i would say and this is before we even get into the rest of the the songs here um just in general simon and garfunkel again a greatest hits band uh, uh, group, uh-huh. you know. As we go through some of these songs, I was surprised by how much I didn't love this album. Okay, <laughs> you know? I okay. Uh, and 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 obviously I'm kind of giving away a little bit. Whereas you know, what Paul Simon's work really starts in the '70s. So to me, he's more of a '70s and '80s artist than a 60s artist i mean obviously simon and garfunkel had a number of huge hits and there's there's at least two other hits off of this album that we'll get to Um, i think bridge over troubled water is the the peak song from a production and songwriting but i would say in some ways it's not my favorite song on the album uh i don't i mean i don't know i don't know what my favorite song i don't know about that but I, like, I don't know what I would say. 
but I, let's just move on. Let's move let's on. Move so on. everyone knows Bridge Over Troubled Water, and we all agree it's a, it's a good song. The next song is El Condor Pasa, or If I Could. Um, and for this particular one, it, it, it can it, some of these have, kind of bring back memories. I actually have a strong memory of my parents listening to this specific song in on their stereo and, and my dad singing along with it. Uh, and this shows already Paul Simon's interest in world music. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, even here in the late 60s into 1970. And I did read that Paul Simon based this song on what he thought was a traditional Peruvian folk song. But later it was found out that someone had actually written it relatively contemporarily. Yeah. And, um, you know, he didn't credit them and it was a mistake. And I think he probably ended up having to pay some kind of royalty to him um, I don't really think the lyrics are that great in this song I'd rather be a handler than a nail yes I would if I only could I surely would yeah and it does that's like I thought I wrote like it sounds like a traditional folk song, um, and so obviously it was. That's what he thought it was, right. um, which he's done for other songs in his solo mm-hmm. stuff. He's kind of re like redid lyrics and stuff. Right, but um, I mean, this one is it's it's fine. Like it has a fine melody, and you know, it's kind of just. And it sounds like it sounds like a traditional folk song. It does, and, and it's got that Peruvian flute in there. So you know, I could see, you know, it has that feeling to it. And obviously, you know, Paul Simon is very interested in world music, Graceland, Rhythm of the Saints, a variety of other albums that he's he's pulled in world sounds, uh, and it does have a melody you can sing along. It's easy to sing along with. The, as I was listening to it, because I remembered this one, I just kind of found myself saying, these lyrics are kind of goofy. I mean, yeah, the lyrics are very simple. And I don't know whether uh, he was thinking this is kind of deep. Oh, I'd rather be a hammer than a nail, this than that or that. Um, I just found them to be, you know, they're, they're rather simple. Yeah, and in Bridge, and, Bridge Over Trouble of Water also has simple lyrics too but uh not this simple maybe and maybe because of the the melody and the way art garfunkel sells bridge over troubled water it comes across as more impactful even though you're right the lyrics are pretty simple you know bridge over troubled water it's not yeah there's not anything really kind of out there in terms of imagery i just find this song and maybe it's familiarity because i have heard the song a lot i mean i had heard it too and and this is Paul Simon singing, right? Uh, which he actually sings lead for a lot of these, right? I mean Garfunkel. At least, like I feel like he's kind of known as like he's the voice, but I mean Paul Simon can also sing really well, <laughs> right? And, and he sings like or is the lead vocalist for a lot of these songs. And obviously, a lot of it as we get into some of the other songs, it's more the harmony between the two yeah. voices. Um, particularly when we get to the, I think, the cover song on here. 
uh, really shows how they can have that harmonic sound quality. But to me, El Condor Pasa, it's fine. And again, you can sing along with it. It comes on the radio. It's easy to sing along. Um, I'd say it's slightly overrated. I don't know how it's rated. Like that's true. I don't it, know either. Is it rated really well? I've heard it before. It's it's one of the worst ones on this album, I think, but it's not bad. It, but I mean it it appears I think on all of their greatest hits types of albums. Uh, so I you know, I think from their body of work, it is I don't know whether it's considered one of the best or maybe it was a hit. Uh, you know, so I don't know. So from there, we move to Cecilia, another very well-known mm-hmm. song. And I immediately put, you can't beat a song with clapping. <laughs> yeah, clapping. <laughs> the percussion is yeah. really interesting. And I don't know, like, percu- I don't know music or percussion. It, I I think thought it sounded like kind of like a street performance. Yeah. In a good way. It's got, it's got a, a much more loose feel to it. It, it like like a drum circle, yeah. you know, kind of thing, and and that's kind of what I liked about this. It was a it was a different sense. Uh, you had a different vibe to it. The instrumentation was a little bit more unusual, um, and I liked the simpler approach to the production. Yeah, I, I think again, this is Paul Simon kind of experimenting, and you can see it, and he does it obviously more in his solo yeah. stuff. And and I'll, like with the hymns, I mean, he sings this one too. He sings a lot of them. I'm like, I think maybe he's he, you know, he's like, well, do I really need Garfunkel? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. I mean, obviously didn't need him. Um, and and I I did read, you know, people were kind of surprised that. After this album, they broke up because this was, I think, probably their best-selling album, uh, and you know, immediately, boom, they break up. Uh, but with Cecilia, again, I've heard it a lot, but this is one that I could easily come back to. It just makes me smile. It's not, again, are the lyrics all that fantastic? It's pretty straightforward, you know, about. A guy and a girl and, you know, getting kicked out of his bed, whatnot. But it's just a fun song. Yeah, it is. And, and on the lyrics, I I wrote down some of the lyrics. And there's this is, I think, the first song of actually quite a few on this album where it's song that's really upbeat, really happy, sad lyrics. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like... I don't know. Paul Simon maybe was going through going some through, relationship well, one, issues. One of them is is a cover, but uh, like the like it. I mean, it's a sad song, really. I mean, he like uh, like he says, "I got up to wash my face. When I came back to bed, someone's taking my place." Right. Um, so it's like, and so it's really about Cecilia is right. you know breaking his heart. Uh, right. I mean, that's the chorus. That's the chorus. You, that's the chorus. Uh, You're breaking my heart. There is the end, the, the jubilation. End. Yeah. She which loves is, me again. Like, like, it's kind of, I'm kind of, I don't know if I like that. I don't think, I, like, he tried to, like, make a story where now he's happy. I'm like, it shouldn't, he should just. 
be sad and she <laughs> leaves him. Like I I don't get why like there's no exp- there's no like no. why she came back. Why does he it should have been if you want a happy ending it should be I'm moving on. <laughs> yeah. I don't need her. I mean some of it may just be the way the w- lyrics sound cuz yeah. you know when he sings jubilation it it is he's got that really kind of happy yeah, it sound to it. sounds good. Right. And it, it this is a this is one of my favorites on the album. Um just because it does have that little looser, more casual feel to it. And you can kind of sense just kind of general emotion around it, the happy emotion around it, even though the lyrics, as you said, aren't, yeah. that, aren't that happy. It's a good sing-along song. So from there, you jump into, this is a song that I really wasn't familiar with. It's called Keep the Customer Satisfied. Uh, and here's where you get a lot more of the vocal harmonies. Yeah, I ha- did know this song. I I've I think I've gone a little more into Paul Simon than you have, mm-hmm. and so I I had heard this one. I think I might have heard it on like a Apple Deep Cut playlist or something uh, before. Um, and I like it has to me kind of the quintessential Simon and Garfunkel sound to me. Like it's Yeah, I put that, you know, it kind of kicks off like a like a folk pop song, but then it, it adds in horns, it gets a little bit different, a change in the tone. I'm not sure what the lyrics mean, because, yeah. uh, you know, he, he, is it about himself trying to write hits to keep the public happy? Uh, but I do like the song. Yeah, it's, I believe, I think I read it sometime that, like, it was about himself. It was about they were on tour or something, and he was just, you know, tired from being on tour. And, and so he, you know, was just trying to keep the customers satisfied. Um, and, but there are some really great I, – I, the chorus is, is a good lyric to me. Uh, everywhere I go, I get slandered, libeled. I hear words I never heard in the Bible. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's funny and it's catchy. It's easy to sing. And that's where I thought, well, maybe he's writing about, you know, are the critics, the critics criticizing him, yet he's got to still try and come up with the next album or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting way to, to, to write about that because a lot of people write about, Life on the road, and you know, I'm a musician, and I miss my home and stuff. But I've I've never heard anyone put it from the perspective of, well, I gotta keep the customers happy. Yeah, I, yeah. There's some other lyrics that I don't know. Like, I'm one step ahead of the shoe shine, two steps away from the county line. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, when you're traveling, you see. Shoe shine people in the airport, or you know, maybe at the bus station back then, and you're getting ready to go from one one city to the next, or one yeah, county yeah. to the next. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is. It, it's a it's a road song, I guess, but maybe written in a more um, poetic manner. Yeah, I mean, it also just sounds really yeah. good. And 
like you mentioned the horns and I think the horns like the near the end when it the horns come in and it's just that's the best part of the song in my opinion. That's my favorite part is when it's just the horns it's so like upbeat it's so energetic. Yeah, and that's where it it almost turns from this kind of folk song sounding into more of a like an R&B song with the horns coming in. That's a little funkier. Uh, which I liked, which I which I liked. Uh, you know, th- there are a, a huge range of styles on this album, uh, which I think are is a positive and a negative at times. Because sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm getting into a groove, and then the tone of the album changes. Yeah, it does that a lot, and definitely on the next song. Yeah, is it? yeah. But so. but but keep the cuts satisfied is probably one of my favorites. On yeah, I, I would say it's probably one of my favorites on the album too. I, I really do like it, and 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 maybe some of it is because I really really was not familiar with this song at all. Um, and and you mentioned that you know you've taken a little bit more deeper dive into Paul Simon's, uh, you know, body of work. Simon and Garfunkel, I almost entirely know as a greatest hits. Yeah. Uh, a, a group. I, I've mostly gone into his solo stuff, but that's like an exception. I, I think this is definitely the very first time I've even attempted to listen to a Simon and Garfunkel album from beginning to end. Yeah. Uh, and I think I've always, I think we, I own Greatest Hits maybe on CD. When I go on to Apple Music or whatever, it's just, oh, hit the, uh, the greatest hits or the essentials or yeah. whatever. I've never deep dived into it, so it was interesting to do this and see some of the different styles. Uh, from that song, you move into a song called "So Long, Frank Lloyd Wright." Another one, totally not familiar with. I really did like this song. Um, I couldn't tell who was the lead vocals on this. I hadn't heard it either. I don't think. Uh, I don't know. I I thought it was Paul Simon, but it could have been Garfunkel. I I guess I I don't know. But I I just I don't know. I thought it was Paul Simon, but um, and you know it, it's it's got a different tone to it. I'm not sure how to classify it, you know, and not that that's important, but just from the sense of I was like, well, is this a folk song? Is it a jazz song? Is it pop? Is it what what and what is it about? Like yeah, it's and I, I, this one's more simple. I'm assuming you like like the simple production. I like production. the simple or production. And there, I think there are actually quite a few songs that are like that, and where it's like, I mean, it's not just Paul Simon and his guitar. No, but, but there's not the big strings and the booming, yeah. you know, et cetera. Yeah, and yeah, what the song is about. I mean. I know Frank Lloyd Wright is a, was an architect, <laughs> and they talk about him being an architect. And they talk to they talk about architects, uh, like he designed he he must have maybe he was a New Yorker or something. He designed a lot of stuff in New York, I think. I, I don't know. know. That, that at some point, the song refers to itself. I put that down, uh, but then then the lyrics kind of talk about maybe they're at a party and people are talking about other people. It's it's. 
it's very very vague yeah it, it's it's poetic um and yeah like the lyrics i wrote down are architects may come and architects may go and never change your point of view when i run dry i think of you uh, i guess frank lloyd right uh so I I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they just liked his architecture. Yeah, maybe I don't maybe know. he liked his architecture. Uh, but I do I do like this one. It's very mellow. Yeah. And it's and it's like to me like throughout this album, a lot of the songs would be like, yeah, Paul Simon can write a good song. Right. Like he he just is like some songs even are like this is like kind of a throwaway almost, but it's still really good. I don't think. It's just he can write really good melodies. And that's even the songs that I'm like, oh, I could take it. I could leave it. You, I can't. I don't deny on any of them that the melodies are just very memorable. You know, you, 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 you can you could go away humming any of these songs as soon as you hear it. Um, and, and lyrically, again, even if they're, the lyrics are simple and I think he could have done better or has done better, you can remember them. You can understand both of them when they're singing. You could easily sing along with most of these songs. Um, and I did like this one because it was a little simpler produced. There's no doubt about it. I, I liked the more straightforward approach to it compared to some of the others. But uh, uh, I was puzzled by the lyrics, but I did find, enjoy the song. Uh, from there, we move into another huge hit, uh, a song called "The Boxer." I mean, uh, I think a lot of people will know will know this one. Uh, it's got kind of that iconic "Lie La Lie" chorus. Yeah. That I think every not everyone, but if you heard it on the radio, that's the part where you come in and you start singing yeah. with 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 Simon and Garfunkel. Um, and I this one I think does have a really unique approach to production. At first I was like, what is that instrument that's playing? I think it's a harmonica uh, that, that plays through it. It's kind of got this really low, low sound to it. Uh, and then it does have the really vivid imagery of the story type song. Yeah, I think like this shows, yeah, Paul Simon can write good lyrics and a good song. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of great a, lyrics in this. There really I, are. I picked out one part that I've always thought is good. Um, is uh, a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises, all lies and jests. Still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Laying low, seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. Yeah, I mean, this is a beautifully written song. I mean, the the um, the part that I didn't write the lyric down, so I can't quote it verbatim. But you know, there's the 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 lines about how all he gets is the come ons from the the whores, and you know that's not what he wants. But then 
he admits that sometimes he was so lonely that he had to go to the prostitutes. And again, I'm not, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, so I'm, I'm not doing them justice. And then obviously the imagery of the boxer, you know, yeah, the standing. box. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that it's called, that's titled the boxer. Yeah. The boxer doesn't come in until really far, maybe the last verse or something of the song. And it's mentioned one time. Um, right. It's ob- really just one verse. Yeah. I mean, Obviously, it's a metaphor of of some kind. Right. Uh, talking about a boxer who you know wears his all of his uh, injuries and uh, things that he had to fight through. Who says he's going to leave, but he doesn't. Right. He remains. Uh, I mean, I think in general the whole song is about kind of the difficulty of life at times and the situations that we find ourselves in and. We have to kind of continue and push forward. Uh, it, it this is a beautiful song. Uh, um, I mean, I I actually like this song more than "Bridge Over Troubled Water." Um, I think the lyrics are better. Um, it, it it does still have that really, really almost over the top production towards the end, yeah. Uh, which is part of the song now. Uh, I, I've never. I don't know if I've heard this. I'm sure I've heard it live and and not as produced because I've seen Paul Simon a couple times. But um, the production doesn't overpower the song. Yeah, and it has the Simon and Garfunkel harmony, right? Which Bridge Over Troubled Water doesn't have as much. Um, it's more of just Garfunkel. I I don't know if I like it more than Bridge Over Troubled Water. I've the end. I really like the like really loud crashing reverberating the, drum. Right. Um, that I've heard some stories about how they how they recorded it. I about like in, like, the, in an elevator shaft yeah. or something. They like put a drum up to it, but uh, which but, is which is cool and it's a cool sound. And the lie, the lie is. Uh, you know, it's it's a good it's catchy. It's a good melody. It's it's. Maybe too long. I mean, it goes on for almost two minutes. That's true. Of just lie, lie, lie. And I'm pretty sure I've also read that Paul Simon has said that he was going to write lyrics and lie, lie, was just a a filler. Just a filler. And he, but people or Garfunkel and the producers or whatever thought it was good and that he should keep it that way. And he has always kind of been like, it could have been better. It should have been. He could could have come up with Um, other imagery to, to close it out uh, i mean that but that's the iconic that's part of the, the iconic part of the song uh, and and it's it's a fantastic fantastic song and um again i think this shows a lot more of the the poetry of paul simon's writing than than many of the other songs uh that we've heard so far i mean i mean maybe you know maybe not fantastically better but it's not as straightforward, simple as Cecilia or El Condor Pasa. It's, it's a really good song. Um, then we move into Baby Driver. Uh, and this one to me has kind of a country rock feel to it. Um, and then it's got a saxophone in it that gives it a little bit of a 50s rock vibe. Yeah, I, there's clapping, I think, or something. Uh, I wrote clapping. Uh, there... Uh, there's something that that makes it feel very energetic. Yeah. Um, and 
obviously now every time I hear the song, I think of the movie Baby Driver. Baby Driver, and I and and then every time I hear the song, I think this must have influenced right. the movie. I mean, some of the lyrics are pretty similar to the movie, like. Um, uh, and I was born one dark gray morn with music humming in my ears. In my ears, they call me Baby Driver. Right. I mean, in the whole movie of Baby Driver is he has to put music in yeah. so that he can drive and not and, and not be distracted. I, it had to have been. Um, uh, I don't think this is this song. I don't know if this song is in on the soundtrack of the movie. I think it's in the credits, maybe. Oh, maybe. But I don't think it's plays during the movie itself. Well, the other thing that um, that stood out to me is it. You know, it, it did kind of shift in its tone from, like I said, kind of folk rock to 50s. And then I felt there was a little bit of the Beach Boys in there, too, because they have these kind of ba-ba-ba background vocals. Yeah, they do. And they, they play car sounds. They do And, and obviously sounds. the Beach Boys wrote a lot of songs about cars. Um, so I feel like, I don't know if this was an homage, but it was definitely influenced by... Maybe the music that Paul Simon was listening to when he was growing up and, you know, early rock, um, maybe some uh, doo-wop. And obviously the Beach Boys were, were still popular in 1970. Uh, it's a fun song. It, it, it's got it, – it, it really does, I think, energize the album. Yeah, it's – yeah, it's definitely energetic. Um, it's in – in the lyrics, other lyrics – like it's definitely um sexual i think i think there it's either he's talking about a like a car or driving in a sexual way or he's talking about a woman as a car like there's definitely um uh he he like like he says i wonder how your engines feel <laughs> is and also i'm not talking about your pigtails but i'm talking about your sex appeal <laughs> Well, then there's all the stuff about my mom was this, my dad yeah. was that, and the story changes with every with every verse. Yeah, it's like my my dad, you know, like my parents were like in the military, but yeah. I couldn't be in the military. Then they got promoted. It's like it has I'm not sure if it, I I thought of it as kind of one continuous timeline, oh. but maybe it's maybe it's not I I don't know if it really means anything. Anything. It might have just uh I mean, I do think there was probably some sexual thing. I mean, uh, well, wonder yeah. what your engines feel. Is I'm pretty, sure. I'm sure uh, that that's yeah. I'm sure that that's. There's true. just lyrics that are kind of like I, that. I think are kind of like like once upon a pair of wheel, <laughs> I hit the road and I'm gone. What's my number? And then he says, "I wonder how your engines feel." Yeah, it's I mean, a fun song. But it's a fun song. It's like it's a toe tapper, right? And it's it, it's good. And it gets faster at the end right. too. It like yeah. goes like double time or whatever. Right. And 
and it kind of closes off with the car noise. Right. Yeah, you hear the engine, the engine revving kind of thing. Which is another song that we've listened to with the engine <laughs> revving. Better than I'm in love with my Better car. Better than I'm in love with my car. We seem to reference that song in every episode. It's set the tone. It, for it the has whole set it has set the low bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That most songs can step over. Um, but I mean there's that same obviously in in the Queen song, the innuendos are just so obvious <laughs> yeah whereas this one yeah i think you're right the, you know the 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 um the analogies and stuff of with sexuality and a, a car and engines and stuff is there but it's it's way better done yeah and it's and a it, better song and it's not the whole song isn't no, about that it's not one <laughs> innuendo after another but it and it's it's a, but the you know the next song yeah, it's, it's another thing weird where the the maybe the placement where it's kind of goes mellow, yeah, really exciting, then mellow, then back to mellow, and, and for right, this next that song, that's it's right. It's it's the order of the songs is is odd because you you don't there's no consistency to the album, and and that's something I, I'm going to bring up again in my kind of closing thoughts because the next song is "Only Living Boy in New York," and I personally think this might be my favorite song on the album um i know i've said that for a couple of the other ones but you know this one kind of keeps has kept rising to the top the more i listened to the album um it's it's just a nice kind of gentle song uh, the the it's got a really subtle uh, melody um the one thing i do wish is that the production had stayed simple through the whole thing because it it starts simple and then it it gets big again towards the end um, and, and I wish it had stayed just a little bit more of that quiet sound. It gets to a like these big harmonic yeah. segments, which I I like, and I actually thought of kind of comparable to like Abbey Road, like even like uh, yeah. like because or something and, on Abbey yeah. Road. Like I was like, it kind of has that same kind of energy to me. Um, and it's, I do think the Paul Simon Arc Garfunkel harmony is very iconic. Um, and so, yeah, it does get big. I I also do really like this song. It has good lyrics. It's Paul Simon singing again, yeah. and he it sets a really nice atmosphere, I think. Well, I, from what I had read, this was written by Paul Simon when Art Garfunkel was away filming a movie, I think. And Paul Simon was kind of missing him and wishing he was back. And and maybe they were recording an album or doing something together. Uh, so it was, you know, he was feeling like he was the only, you know, the only guy in New York. Yeah, like he was feeling lonely in yeah. New York, which is obviously the city that never sleeps. Right. Um, and, like, it's interesting that he says Tom in the lyrics. Right. He calls whoever he's talking about to Tom. I don't know. 
I don't know whether Art Garfunkel's name. Well, I well now that I think about it, they originally were in a duet duo called Tom and Jerry. Oh. Early on, I think when they were in high school, even uh, they they started recording under the names Tom and Jerry, or under the name Tom and Jerry. Like it was like their pseudonym. Right. Yeah. So that was their band name. They were. I don't know if it was a doo wop group or a, you know a, an early or late 50s, early 60s group, because they were they did meet when they were, I think, in elementary school. Uh, and, and they started a band early, and they went by the name Tom and Jerry. So, so I think he is referring to art. As Tom. Right. Which is a very, like, I mean, again, it makes it, like, that much more sentimental. It's kind of like, you remember, we, as kids, we were, like, friends. And right. And we grew up together. So, like, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, but, like, there's just lyrics that I always, like, like I got, I get the news I need on the weather report. Yeah, it's just like yeah. to me. I mean, I read that as like because the first line it's talking about him getting on a plane, like to come back. I'm assuming, and I read that as like I don't want the plane to be delayed by weather. Is like what I read it as. Yeah, and so it's like all the only news I need is, is the weather. Is whether or not to see if he'll the plane will get here. Right. Yeah. That's that's a good read on that. You're probably right. I hadn't really even thought about that. Uh, I, I was thinking differently, but you're probably right. Uh, I mean, just and even just the way he sings the title, "The Only Living Boy in New York." I don't know. It's it's got a real like, em, emotional yeah, feel it's, to it's it. It's emotional. Uh, like yeah, and the, I mean yeah, it is. And the, the, it's like very emotional lyrics. Like he feel like it. Like you can really feel he's like lost. I mean, he's lost. He he's like. I mean, he says half of the time we're gone, but we don't know where, and we don't know where. Yeah. Like it's, it's. I mean, so I mean, it, it it does obviously show how close these two were, uh, which I mean is sad that I know they had a relatively acrimonious breakup, and there was a period where they, I don't think they even spoke to each other for years, and then came back together at various times, and then would break up again, and you know, kind of renew friendships over. But I guess that's maybe is what happens sometimes when you have known someone since you were a little kid. I mean, yeah, you don't always get along. And you, you're working together, too. You weren't yeah. just playing on the playground or going to movies or whatever. You are. This is your job, and you're with each other all the time, and maybe you get pissed off, and then you're separated, and he's like, oh, man, I, I miss yeah. my buddy. I think this, like if Bridge Over Trouble could have been the last song, I think this could have been a good last song, too. Yeah, to I think you're right. Remind... Like and and it, especially because this is their last album, right? It's like to remind them where they came from. Yeah, who like that they are friends. They do care about each other, right. which I is. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a meta fourth wall right. <laughs> kind like, of thing. Kind of thing, but but I, I it would be it would be good. It's a it's a great song. It really is a good song, uh, and and it I, I don't know how well it's known. It should be it should be better known. Because uh, it's it's a beautiful song. From there, we move into Why Don't You Write Me. And to me, this had a little bit more of a country feel to it. Kind of had that twangy guitar. And then it had these kind of playful vocals to it where someone come in with a real deep voice in the background and some oohs and some ahs and this kind of bouncy saxophone in here. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't remember that much more about the song. It's... It's one that I haven't heard, um, and it's 
not it's on the lower half of the album. Yeah, it didn't really stick quality with me. Quality-wise. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote to it. It just sounded kind of silly to me. It was kind of like a silly vibe. It was just like these kind of high-pitched why, why, whys um, and this kind of weird, deep... Yeah, that weird, deep sad, person in the background like, and then like the saxophone it, would come in. It was just like... And, and uh, the other thing I noticed, like, it's another song that it's silly sounding Dark lyrics. <laughs> really? I mean, See, I don't really. This is the one song on on the album I think that I can't really remember how it goes in my head. All the other ones I can. Uh, yeah, and and I mean, pretty much all I wrote was it's a silly song, but it's act, but it has dark lyrics. Uh, and I wrote some of the lyrics. Like the, the darkest part was like uh, uh, Thursday ain't. It kind of goes through the days in the song. Thursday ain't no sign, like he's waiting for someone to write um, to him. Uh, drank half a drank a half bottle of iodine. Friday woe is me. I'm gonna hang my body from the highest tree. <laughs> wow. Like very dark. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> like at it's all. It's very dark, uh, but kind of this silly vibe. And maybe uh, that's why. Maybe I was just so focused in on the sound of it. This kind of twangy and the the weird background vocals that I didn't the lyrics didn't jump out at me, and again the melody I I don't remember how the melody goes at all, you know I I could in my head hum the main melodies of almost every one of these other songs, but not this one uh, I I don't it, it, it's I remember liking it and liking the melody I do think the melody. It's Paul Simon like cannot write a bad melody, <laughs> yeah. and I don't, and I so I I do think it's good, but yeah, it doesn't stick out to me. It's not one that I would Be listen like, oh, to, yeah. like, uh, but you know, it's it it's fine. still it's not bad. It's not terrible. Um, and then from there, you, we jump into what really kind of is strange. It kind of sticks out to me on the album because it's a live mm-hmm. cut. It's a cover of the Everly Brothers song, Bye Bye Love, which, big hit. They obviously were highly influenced by the Everly Brothers with the harmonies of them. They sound almost exactly like the Everly Brothers, if you've, if you've ever heard the song, Bye Bye Love. I mean, the vocals are spot on. You've got just the perfect harmonies. It, it, it's, you know, they're not trying to do anything different with the song at all. They're just covering the song, so it's very consistent with the original. I don't know where it was recorded, when it was recorded. To me, it's it's almost like they just said, oh, we've got this live song. Let's just put it on the album.
Like, yeah, it's, I believe, the first live song that we've listened to. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And normally, I'm not... I think I've I think I've told you before that I like not really a fan of live songs. I'm like, why would I listen to the live? I'll just listen to the album version. Uh, but I think this one does work really well because it's a simple song. The crowd can get involved with the clapping, like the crowd clapping along right. with the song um, is good. Uh, and and again, it's another happy song with sad lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Obvi- Paul Simon didn't write this one, right? But yeah, it is another. I don't. I'm not gonna relix. I mean, it's called "Bye Bye Love." Uh, I mean, I just wondered why they didn't just record it new in the studio and do a kind of a full new production. If they really wanted to do this song again, you know, why why not just re-record it and maybe do something a little different uh, but you're right i mean the, the with the live they do get the energy and the clapping of the of the of the audience and you hear the audience cheering uh, it would just to me seem like an odd choice i mean it, it does fit the the tone of the album uh, but it almost to me seemed like oh they were <laughs> a little lazy i don't know why i i did like i hadn't i don't know if i was not familiar with the song. The song. So I, I, when I first heard it, I didn't know it was a cover. Uh, and so, you know, and a lot of Paul Simon, I assume he writes everything. Um, but then I uh, saw on Apple that was written by these other people. Right. And I was like, who are these people? And I, I was like, oh, okay, the Everly Brothers. Right. Obviously, I've not really listened to them, but I do You've know. Heard of them. They're very influential. Right. The Beatles um, loved them. Yeah, rock. You know, ro- early, all the 60s rockers loved the early rock and roll of the Everly So Brothers. in that way, I wasn't like thinking about how it was exactly the same because I don't know what the original version sounds yeah. like. Uh, so I, I think it's, it does fit the tone really well. Um, but, I mean, it's good. I, I mean, I think it's good. It's a good song. And... Uh, it may be like yeah, it's another where it's like it's very uh, upbeat, and right. then it goes mellow, mellow upbeat. It doesn't maybe right. it's not consistent or it's not it's up and down or whatever you want to say. I mean it's it's a it's a it's a good song. I, I won't deny it's a good song. It it just seemed odd that they suddenly put a live song in the middle of this kind of well produced album, but. Um, you know, I, I like the song, so I, I won't des- deny that I like their version of it, too. Uh, and then the album closes with a song called Song for the Asking, which is another kind of soft, sweet song. It starts out really intimate. Um, it's a self-referential song. I put add it to the list. Yeah, I also <laughs> noticed when I was looking at the lyrics... It is a self-referential song. He does say, here is my song for asking. Ask me and I will play. Yeah. Uh, so I, it is one. And one something that I thought was interesting is the crowd noise from the last song carries on yeah. to this song. Initially, I thought, oh, this is a live version. But then I realized, no, they just they mixed the two together as this one starts. So, yeah, I like had to go back to the beginning of the song. I was like, is this act like? Which I don't. I guess that's interesting. I I, I don't know. I felt it feels kind of weird because the rest of the album, they don't seem to really 
They like, don't seem to try and blend them yeah. together in any way, shape, or form. But in this right. one, they're like, let's get in the crowd noise because it would <laughs> yeah. sound weird if the yeah. crowd just stopped. But uh, but this one is good, too. Like, it's it's hard for, like, when you have Paul Simon and almost just him and his guitar, it's, yes. like, good. Right. Ask me and I will play so sweetly I'll make you smile This is my tune for the taking Take it, don't turn away I've been waiting all my And that's where I, I said it It almost starts to get overly produced, just almost, because they start bringing in some strings and stuff, but then it, it's like the producer pulled back, and it's, it, it, it stayed a little bit more intimate. And I did really like this song, too. But I do think it was a good way to end the album. Um, do I think that still Bridge Over Troubled Water might be a better way to end, or... Bridge Over Troubled Water maybe have been the way to start the, the second half of the album instead of kicking off with it. I still think that that was a bad mistake, that you know they should have really rethought the order of these songs uh, because it's, it's jarring. The album is a bit jarring. Because you go from you know something super produced and loud to something really soft, and then then suddenly something kind of rockabilly, and then suddenly it's really soft, and then you know. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's a little all over the place, <laughs> yeah. But I do think that the songs and the quality of the songs make up for it. To for me, the quality of the songs are good enough and are are so good. There are few songs that are really, really yeah. good that like I can't. It's hard for me to really take back that much from it for being out of order. I mean, would I? Would I tell someone, no, don't listen to the album. It's not very good. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, but I do say, after listening to it, I think I listened to it three times, not back-to-back, -back, but three days in a row, I did come across a little underwhelmed by the, the album as a whole. Uh, it didn't doesn't seem cohesive to me. It, it jumps around. Uh, the production, some songs, I think, is a little over the top. Uh, there, there are times when the production, I think, fits the song, but then there are other times when I don't. Um, I would still put Simon and Garfunkel in the playlist category of artists right now. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I would say, oh, I'm going to put this whole album on regularly uh, because I could be thinking, oh, there's five other Simon and Garfunkel songs that I like better than... Why don't you write me? Or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, song for us. Yeah, or El like, Condor Pasa, even. Yeah. You know th that. Um, that I, think, I mean, is it? It's a good. I'm glad we listened to it. I. It, it is. It, it isn't one that I'm going to go back and say I'm going to listen to that album, a lot. I might put the album on, but skip a couple songs, or I, maybe I should just do what become my own producer and rearrange the songs in the order that I yeah. think they should go. Yeah, you could rearrange. Because that might make it a better album to me. Yeah, I 
am definitely biased because I love Paul Simon. Um, and so I don't think that I like the album more than you did. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's still hard for me to like, uh, rate it or place it just because it is kind of, I do think m- almost all the songs are good songs and, uh, and, and the highs of the album are really, really high. Right. Uh, and maybe that's my problem is that, again, partly because of the order of the songs, when you hear the title song at the very beginning, you hear the boxer right in the middle, and you need something to, to kind of bridge them. The other songs are really good. I, I just didn't, again, to me, didn't feel like a one cohesive piece of artwork. Yeah, and that, and I've, I've like criticized other albums for for that reason like the queen album for for not being consistent or or you know or whatever um but for whatever reason this album it was not that much of a problem for me like again it may just be one of those things where it's just like i it's for some reason, Simon Garfunkel can get away for it, get with away it, with, with it you. for me, but like, not Queen. Like, <laughs> right? I don't know. Well, and uh, and you're right. Maybe you know. Maybe I'm predisposed to be like, oh yeah, I'll I'll give Queen a pass because yeah. they might have, and I'm in love with Thug My Car on yeah. there. But I'll still give that album a four out of five. You know. Yeah. Uh, whereas with this one, maybe the I'm thinking I'm expecting too much from it, knowing. The title song is on there, knowing that the boxer is on there. I mean, I'm expecting every single song to hit those same highs in it, and I shouldn't be expecting that because no one can do that. Um, yeah. Because I even put down here, the vocals are uniformly great. You can't can't flaw any of the vocals on this. Uh, the melodies are just fantastic because, as you said, Paul Simon can't write a bad melody. I mean, uh, the lyrics are a bit hit and miss. Um, but even in the, the the songs where the lyrics are like yeah they're just okay they're memorable yeah, I remember you know I remember I'd rather be a hammer than a nail <laughs> yeah you know um, I would have liked a little bit of the production to be stripped back on some of the songs I mean I'm giving it a three and a half out of five <laughs> yeah uh, I, but that might be that's probably a little harsh I'm gonna I don't know I don't think that's too I mean that's a seven out of ten if yeah you know, like it's what I gave the Queen like I. And I'm. I think I'm gonna reverse. Do the reverse queen. Where I'll. I'm gonna You're give it a, give four. a four. I gave it a queen three and a half. You gave queen a, a four. four. So yeah. uh, I don't know. It's just. And but you know, and, and maybe as as we're going through each one of these songs individually, I'm like, oh yeah, I really like Only Living Boy in New York. Oh, I really do like So Long Frank Lloyd Wright. But something about when I when they're mixed in with all these other songs, I'm like. Yeah, but when I sit down and listen to it as a whole, it left me wanting a little bit. Um, so I, I'm going to have to experiment and, and reorder this yeah. album <laughs> and tell you, here's my... Kind of like what we did with the White Album. Yeah, you can have your own cut. Yeah. Your own, like, version of the album. And, yeah, yeah, kind of what you people have done with the White Album. Where, where like, they, this turn it into one it's record. It's into a single album. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm gonna reorder this album and come and and, and, and yeah. at a future date I'll say here's my my edition of 
bridge over troubled water and, and get your opinion on it. But, I mean, I think we both enjoyed listening to it. Um, I did find it a good listen uh, in bed. Yeah, and a lot of the songs are mellow. Yeah, uh, you know, I, that's that's where I listened to it for the first time as a whole. Was again in bed, lights off, earbuds in, the lyrics up on yeah. my on my phone, and taking the notes. And and, and it, it, it's a good stereo album too, you know, with the, with your earbuds or your headphones on because the production is. Grammy winning. I mean, for 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 a reason. Yeah, I'm a little surprised it won that many. I didn't know it was like that successful. Yeah, they they like hauled the away with with a lot of Grammys, which so. is kind of surprising to me. I mean, the same year Let It Be came out, right? Um, the last Beatles album, and obviously didn't win Album of the Year or Record of the Year, which is you know the songwriting. I think Record of the or no Song of the Year is the songwriting award. And record of the year, I think, is for the best single, and then they won album of the year too, and production. I mean, I mean, yeah, they, they, they. I mean, yeah, Let It Be maybe has problems with the production, as people have pointed out. <laughs> yeah, that's but, true. But yeah, I mean, but, it's, but they also have they Let also it be have on Let there. It Be on there, right? <laughs> yeah, which uh, I mean, some people say is overproduced, but um, uh, but the, the com- obviously the competition was stiff and. Paul and and Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel ran away with it that year. So it was a good listen. You know, yeah. we, I think we both enjoyed it. Uh, and so we will take a break. Yep. And we'll be back in a moment to talk about um, the movie we watched from 
Also, apparently, he was the one, when Godard was struggling to edit the movie, he was the one who suggested to him to just cut directly to the best parts of the shot, which led to the film's iconic Iconic jump cuts. Jump cuts. Um, So... Uh, but but later in his career, he became more known for his minimalist uh, film noirs um, in the 60s and in the 70s, like, like the, the Red Circle. Right. Um, and a quote that I uh, read where someone, uh, Anthony Lane uh, of The New Yorker, when he was writing about Melville's films, he wrote, if it comes to a choice between smoking and talking, smoke. Which I think is very uh, descriptive yeah. of his films, especially this film. Yes. Um, uh, unfortunately, he actually died only a few years later after this movie came oh, out. Oh, really? He died in 1973 from a stroke. He was only 55. Wow. Um, so, uh, uh, and and the only other thing I have a uh, background is that the and something that I took note of when I was watching the movie is the actual first part of the movie when it has like a epitaph about the red circle from like a the from buddha right um he actually made it up right i read that too because when i watched the film i thought oh you know he obviously maybe he's a buddhist or something but i i I did do some investigation and and i guess he had done a similar thing yeah for another movie where they had some kind of opening quote. Yeah. And he had made that one up, I, too. I believe it was Le Samurai. Yeah. Which he also directed, which is a very famous, uh, like, noir uh, French movie. I, I haven't seen it, but I have heard right. of it. Um, and, and I did read that um, Roger Ebert loved this movie. Yeah, I think he gave it four stars. I, I, I went online and I read his review, and, you know, he, he really just loved you know the general philosophy of the movie i guess um but we'll get to our thoughts here so i guess we'll do a quick plot rundown um or a premise i mean it's it's basically about it is a crime thriller thriller heist movie a little um it's it's like it, you know, in the the beginning, which I thought was really interesting. It's a it's a cold open. I mean, it just starts, yeah, and you don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I really liked about it. it was very engaging to me. The beginning was um, because you just have so many questions, like who who are these people? Who is this person that they're like transporting? Who's this person in jail? Like all these different questions, um, and it kind of slowly gives you these answers to. I mean, from a plot perspective, it's basically there's a guy getting out of jail. He's tipped off about a jewelry store that could be easily robbed. And through the plot, he meets up with this criminal that's on the run, and they decide to rob this jewelry store together. I mean, that's the plot. That's the basic plot. And then there's a police officer trying to chase down the the guy on the lamb, etc. But that's the basic plot. Téléphone, s'il vous Là. Merci. Ici, police, urgent. La gendarmerie, s'il vous plaît. Vous avez une carte mission du coin Oui, tenez, derrière vous. Où sommes-nous exactement À Meursault, l'hôpital. La route, c'est quoi C'est la D23. Allô, la gendarmerie Ici, le commissaire Matei, brigade criminelle de Paris. Je convoyais par le train... A, a number of things that stood out right away 
uh, you immediately saw that the color red was going to be significant. At least I, I did. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's called the red, it's circle. Called the red circle. They have a, they sh- visually show a red circle on the in the opening, and then you know one of the very first scenes, they're in a car, and kind of the only color is the red light, and they run the red light and they almost get in an accident. Yeah. And to me, that's almost the movie right there. You know, you you make a decision, and. It all—it's either the, it's the wrong decision. Essentially, you shouldn't have run that red light, and something <laughs> bad could have or was is going to happen. Yeah, there's another one pretty early, which was I thought very Hitchcockian. Actually, was when he does the red circle on the cue. Uh, oh yes, the yes, yes. On the on the cue stick, the, the cue stick with the red chalk right. on the cue stick in a red circle. I was like, to me, that close up of him doing this, I was like, we just watched Hitchcock. Movie, yeah. I was like, this is very Hitchcockian to me. Just that one. I mean, it's not really. I mean, it's not really a mystery or anything like that. But it's right. It has that kind of allure of like. Well, and then oh. they cut from there to the the top down view of the pool table, yeah. and it's two white balls and a red ball. Yeah. You know, and so the, the visuals are very stunning. I mean, it's I I do find that interesting because I found the beginning a little confusing. Uh, and and I, I really wasn't sure who was what and what was going on, and it, it took me a little while to to really even think, boy, am I going to get through this movie? Because this is a long movie. Yeah, it's pretty long. I think it's like two hours twenty minutes. Yeah, longer than I thought. And uh, yeah, in the beginning, I was I I was confused, but I wasn't necessary. But it wasn't necessarily bad. I I I initially thought. There's a there's a part you know where the the prisoner is is getting transported on a train and right. then it cuts to the guy in the in, jail. In jail and at first I thought it was a flashback. Yeah, me too. That's I, exactly what I thought. I thought, oh, it's showing how this guy got here or why he's in jail or or something. But it's actually not. It's a different person. It was happening at the same time. Right. Uh, so I actually wrote I like the flashbacks, but then I was like. Or another story, like I wasn't, like I wasn't sure, but you do learn, you do, learn. and you do yes. figure it out, and I, and I do. There were maybe times where I was like, "This is pretty long," but I did like, like overall, I did like it, and and as you said before, like some of the 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 movie is shot really well, yeah, and it's it it was constantly surprising me with the shots. As I watched the movie, there was just they kept on being another shot. I was like, "That's a really good shot." Yeah, I, I, I find the the visuals were really good, and some of the set design was interesting. That and I I don't know the what what if the, what the importance was it other than maybe visuals in the houses. You know the the maybe the. Um, the wallpaper would be a, a really interesting color, and there'd be a lot of vertical stripes. And then, you know, they're in the one house where there's the spiral staircase. Just the visuals to me were, were, were I have to say, were probably my favorite part of the movie. Um, there's interesting connections, I think, to American cinema as well. I mean, obviously, the general genre of a heist film or a gangster film in some ways. I found it interesting that all of the criminals drove American cars. Yeah, yeah. And that's 
that's obviously a choice, right? Um, that they chose to drive American cars, and and I, it might be part of that kind of America co- is cool, you know? right? This American culture is is you know is a cool thing, and they smoke and they drive right. American cars, and because they're obviously in France. I mean, every other car you see is some funky Citroen or tiny little French car, but then the gangster gets out of jail, immediately goes by a car, big American car. Um, you know, the other guy's driving, every gangster's driving an American <laughs> car. It's like, wow. So, yeah, this, uh, to me, yeah, it was, it was obviously an aesthetic choice, which um, I found very, very interesting. Um, a lot of coincidences. Yeah, which is kind of Hitchcockian. Two. Two is like, it's a lot of coincidences. I mean, it's called the red circle, and the quote. It's kind of about how if two people are like fated to meet, right. it's gonna happen. It's kind of like I guess it's just a metaphor for fate. I don't really. Yeah, uh, I don't know. And, and and I mean, to me, the kind of the general theme was, and, and the police, the head police investigator guy kind of yeah. says it: all men are evil. You know, everyone does something bad at some point because they, because they're they're men, or you know they're human. That things are sort of in their own. They're they're in your in your DNA almost. Yeah, that uh, was, and you can't avoid it. That was um, kind of surprising. How like kind of philosophical it was, and how much it commented on human nature. It yeah. was kind of like, and multiple times, you know, revisited the kind of. All men are are evil, right? Or are, are, are bad, or you know, uh, like they're they're born good but they get corrupted. Monsieur l'inspecteur général, mon directeur vient vous dire que seule la chance peut rattraper vos jeunes dorénavant. La chance est moi en vérité. And it's kind of inevitable that it's you're going to get... It's yeah. inevitable. And I'm not sure necessarily really how that connects to the actual no, story. No, I, I don't know either. Um, the, the, I mean, there's some, like, the, the main police uh, investigator who's trying to chase down the, the criminal is... Um, like he he get you know he I thought it was interesting how he he's kind of questioning this belief to the man too. He goes like you know even police officers right. are evil and then he then the guy's like all men are evil right but it's like and then at the end he kind of seems to have a realization or he's like oh yeah that's what he meant and I'm like I didn't I didn't put that like what happened made him finally think oh yeah, yeah I, I he's have to right. say I know we're jumping around a bit I found the ending a little confusing. Um, yeah, the end is the end is definitely not logical. It's it's or like the twist is like the twist does make sense in the movie, but uh, some things like uh, the uh, guy just kind of appearing there, like he just gets there somehow and breaks in and right. And I I didn't know whether they were were they implying maybe I must have I may have totally misread this. Were they implying? That the police inspector was maybe going to steal the jewels, because he's got some rings and stuff on his hands at the end, and he takes them, and off. he takes them off, and he hands them to his subordinate, and then all these other police come piling in. I mean, and I'm like, well, was it a sting operation? It was a sting operation to catch the 
the fugitive or to catch the, the, the jewel thieves, but but was he implying that he was a corrupt cop too? It, that left me puzzled because the movie just ends. Yeah, it's – and, you know, we're going straight to the end. Right. Um, which is fine. I think we can circle back, red circle back. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, like, the end is definitely surprising but also not at the same time. It's in, – and a lot of times throughout the movie – I was comparing it to other heist movies, to like right. modern heist movies. Yes. And think how there are a lot of similarities. There are. And there's a lot of differences. And uh, the differences stood out more. And this is def- like in a modern heist movie and in Ocean's Eleven, like George Clooney, like anytime something happens, you think oh, this is part of the plan. This right. is part of the plan. Like somehow it's going to be part of the plan and they'll get away with it. They don't get away with it. Right. They die. Everybody dies. All of the crew <laughs> dies. Right. Like, they don't get away with it, and that wasn't part of the plan, and they die. So it's, like, different in that way. Yeah. And I, a, I like that. But there are some of the, what you would now kind of consider tropes, I wonder if they were first presented in this movie, even though this is set in, you know, 1970, you know, when they're when they're robbing the the jewelry store they don't have lasers but they've got those infrared things yeah they have basically lasers and they've got to climb through them and stuff which i mean that's in every heist movie now yeah i i was wondering i i was thinking this can't be the first i mean obviously oceans 11 the original is from when when did that i I don't know when that came out i've never seen it and i don't know if they literally do a jewelry heist too i mean i don't know but but it's there are definitely this there are tropes that are Definitely there. And it's kind of the ragtag group. They come yeah. together. The ragtag group, it has the lasers, basically. It has the, like, this is impossible to steal, uh, uh, like, weirdly, like, The weird alarms. Alarms, like, complicated security system. Right. yeah. The prison guard that, like, almost catches them. Right. Uh, I mean, I have to say, and again, we're jumping around a lot. The heist part is my favorite part of the movie. Uh, I, I know a lot of people would probably say, no, it's it's the character development. And, I mean, I think you can see why you quoted that that um, critic saying between talking and smoking smoke because there's a lot of qu- silence in this film. A lot. During the heist, I the think heist, they don't say a word. Right, and and I read somewhere it's, it's almost a half an hour of just no talking. Uh, and um, they even comment it. The police guy even yeah. says like, "Wow, these guys don't talk that much." <laughs> right, but even when you know the 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 guy that gets out of jail and he's you know there's a, he's sitting in a in a cafe just smoking. Yeah, he's just driving down the road. You know the the guy that's uh, escaped from the train. He's just running through the woods. He's swimming. I mean, there's just just times when there's just almost no dialogue. Uh, Even when they're on the train, they barely say anything. Yeah, and I like that. I think it was, I think it was, it's definitely for people that that don't like movies for spoon feeding them information. This is definitely one that they would like because they don't. I mean, you just watch what's happening, and in some ways, it's maybe more realistic, uh, but. Like, yeah, like, there are just long periods where almost no dialogue is happening. 
And it's very aesthetic of like the smoking yeah. and the driving and sitting in the club or in the I mean, cafe you, you or... definitely get the late 60s, 70 vibe uh, with the clothes, the smoking, um, you know, the hats, the, the, the women in the club, the dancing, a lot of jazz, a lot of jazz music, uh, either as part of the soundtrack or within the, the movie itself. And, and again, I think that that was my favorite part of the film was the visuals, was the set design, was the shots. Were, and I mean, those were clo- just clothes of the day, but it's like, these, they got some killer suits, these guys. <laughs> <You know? laughs> some great trench coats. Yeah, a lot of trench coats. <laughs> and that's great. A lot of trench coats, a lot of fedoras. And, and even when they go to, to rob the jewelry store, they got these cool jackets on and these funky satin masks. Yeah. Uh, and and these little, I don't know, driving caps. I mean, they they even look stylish as they're going going to go rob the go rob the jewelry store. Um it, it, it there are part there are parts of the movie that I really, really liked. Other parts of it, it was like it, it was probably a little too slow for me, I'll be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, it it probably is just it probably is a bit too long. Um, as much as I like the the kind of slow slower pace, the kind of aesthetic minimalist yeah noir, it is maybe a bit too long. Um, but I don't think that takes away that much for it for me. Uh, and the aesthetic is just so much part. It really did remind me a lot of um, even though it. It's not really like French New Wave movies. It's not like Breathless, really, but it did no. remind me of Breathless actually quite a bit. I kind of put that, to me, it seemed like it was a combination of a French New Wave film, at times just an art film, because there's some some visuals that I still don't understand, and I'll bring them up to you. A heist film and a mob film all, all combined together um, that, as a whole... It, it didn't work for me probably as much as it did for you. Yeah. And maybe I've been, you know, I've been exposed to more <laughs> French yeah. new wave stuff, more French, like minimalist. Yes. I think uh, you definitely like, have than I have. <laughs> movies like, and Breathless is, it's, I do think it's, I think it has a very similar aesthetic and a very similar atmosphere to, to Breathless. Breathless, a lot of it is about, how cool right um uh Jean-Paul Belmondo looks right yes um, yes and yeah he and he's always smoking oh, and yeah. uh and there's even a shot in the movie that really reminded me of a shot in Breathless um it's where um it's when he gets to the car and he has his gun and he puts he it puts in the glove compartment and compartment. then he takes it back yeah. out yeah which is kind of a weird thing to do and i thought 
There's a scene in, in Breathless, Breathless where he's driving and he takes his gun, gun out of the glove compartment. You're it's like right. the exact same angle yeah. shot too from the back seat. Yeah. And like and and after that, like I was expecting the guy to turn and talk to the camera like he does in Breathless. <laughs> right. Like I I was it was very similar and the radio's playing just like the radio yeah. plays in Breath. I was like, this is like I don't know that might be an homage. Obviously he right. Like it's because it's kind of a weird thing to put it in and then take it out and then it just cuts and. I was a little um, shocked. I have to say, uh, there's the scene where uh, the main character, I think his name is Corey, yeah, gets kind of hijacked by the mobsters. Yeah, I know. I know. And they take him into the woods, and. Vogel, the 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 guy that's on the run, comes out of the trunk, yeah. and saves him. He just shoots the two guys. He just kills them. Yeah, I I, I did, was not expecting that from a movie from I wasn't expecting that either. I, and and actually, Corey actually kills somebody earlier in the movie. But I, it was like I, I believe he kills somebody. But it's what like in the pool hall. I believe. He oh, do, that's right. He does he kill does. one of the guys. It was very quick and yeah. And I wasn't hundred percent sure at first if he, he actually yeah. did, but he does. I believe he does. He does. Kill. Someone gets shot there. There's like a close up of a guy getting shot, and it's just like a flash edit. But yeah, this is like it's it's like. Like, I wasn't surprising him to just, like, execute these two people. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you think, oh, okay, these guys are... They're bad guys. They're bad guys. They're not really... And and I I do really like their relationship. And it's a very subtle relationship, the, the Corey and Vogel. I think... Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite scenes, I think, is when he comes out of the trunk... And he lets he tells them to come out, and they have right. their first kind of interaction because it's just this kind of standoff. I mean, it's like and there's it's this kind of Mexican standoff kind right. of, but then there's this kind of mutual respect for each right. other. It's like they know they kind of know what type of person each person is. Each other are, you know, um, and I, I found some of the choices I didn't quite understand other than maybe the visuals. Like in that scene, he drives out in the middle of this field. Yeah. And for some reason is like, that's an interesting choice. He's out in this muddy field in the car he gets out, he's tromping through the mud, and then he just says, you can come out now. Yeah, it is. I did think, I mean, it does kind of lead into that kind of Western right. aesthetic. yeah. But also, I mean, it could be that, like, in terms of the story, that 
you know, he wants doesn't want anyone to see, right. obviously. Yeah, right. So he goes out somewhere. It's kind of weird that he like drives around in circles right. in the mud. Like, I for, at first I was like, maybe it's because he wants the guy to think that he's like driving, yeah, or he's moving, but he's really not. But I I don't know. That's it's, what I thought he was gonna do. That he was gonna just sit there and wait for the guy to get out, thinking, oh, okay, he thinks I've parked and I've left, and that he was gonna, I don't know ambush him or something but then he's just like you can come out now you know and and obviously he knew he was in the trunk when he didn't open the trunk at the second um police stop uh yeah so because i I thought well this is i mean it's a crazy coincidence that yeah the guy on the run happens to get into the trunk of the guy who is getting ready to do a heist yeah it's it's a it is coincidental. I believe there is like I I think that the Corey actually does in a way plan on it to happen or I think I read something about it how like he or a reading of it was that like he goes to that diner because he knows because he knows that's like in where this escaped person has been and he leaves his trunk unlocked on purpose because he somehow knows that he will check the chunks to get in. And, I mean, it is coincidental, but I, I can see it as being like <laughs> yeah. a, he kind of planned it and it just went well. Everything fell into place exactly. Uh, the two lead characters are, are, are engaging, even though they're very stoic. I mean, you don't yeah. – you don't really – get to know them but you get a sense that you already know who the kind of people they are obviously um the other then the third person that's involved in the heist is the former police officer who's an alcoholic and that scene where they first introduce him is is the weirdest one of the weirdest scenes that's where i was like this is kind of like an art film so he's he's in this house he's an alcoholic he's obviously having alcohol withdrawal hallucinations and these crazy spider things are crawling there's on spiders, him. There's spiders. There's snakes. There's lizards. There's rats. Yeah. Like, and I, yeah, it's like either a hallucination or a dream or whatever. But it's, I, it does a good job of instantly like there's something wrong with this person. Yeah, and that's the house where there's this weird green wallpaper with red and. Excuse me, red and different colored stripes on it, and it's kind of, it's almost stage like. It's like almost like on a on a stage versus in a real house. It just was obviously, I don't know if it was supposed to mean something, but like I don't know if it was supposed to mean. Like I only see it as this person. It has mental problems. This person's uh, like a little unhinged. He he, he's going through something, and obviously, and that's. You know, also assisted by his look, he's very rough. And right. He's unshaven, and his there's all these are... piles of alcohol, bo- empty bottles next to him, and then there's the closet where everything's coming out of, yeah. which they refer back to later at the end of the movie, uh, where he he closes. No, no, he opens the closet and nothing comes out. Yeah, that like you know this closet and these uh, creatures are. You know his demons, and... right? And he's kind of 
he, he, he's kind of eliminated his demons because he's given this opportunity to help these guys do this heist. Yeah, it's it's interesting because that, like, for some reason, this is the thing that, Right, like, that brings him out of, basically keeps him from being an alcoholic anymore. Yeah, and I think, I, I feel like that's kind of a trope, too, at least of, like, a ragtag team of there's this person who's has this issue or has an issue. Right. He's an alcoholic or whatever. And doing this, he needs to kind of conquer his demons to be able to do right. the heist. And then that also helps him conquer his demons. And he's a sharpshooter and they need him to shoot this lock yeah. in this jewelry store that controls all of the other um, alarms in the jewelry store. And so he takes this as his opportunity to kind of get rid of his stop drinking, essentially. I mean, and even during the after he does his part in the heist and they're they're stealing all they're loading up all the jewels, he takes out a flask Mm -hmm. and you think he's going to take a drink. Yeah. But he just smells the alcohol, closes it up and puts it away. Uh, And and I guess that's kind of a sign that. He's free of this demon, the demon alcohol. Yeah. And later he says, "I don't even want, I don't even want my part of the cut, I, because you, you, you did what I needed from this." Yeah, it's. I actually thought that was gonna like. I thought it was gonna. I thought the police uh, investigator was going to like be able to figure out who it was because of him taking out the flask. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, but like but then he just looks at the security footage he's like, uh, there's nothing here. <laughs> right. And then just and then gives up, I guess. Right. Uh and then of course the co- various things happen where uh they can't they can't get the 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 fence that they think is going to help them sell the jewels has been convinced not to do it because of the mob and there's all these interplaying things that end up where the policeman pretends to be a fence. Pensez pouvoir faire quelque chose? Je pense, à condition de voir, si vous n'êtes pas trop pressé. Qu'est-ce que vous entendez par pas trop pressé? Une affaire de cette importance ne pourra se traiter que par tranche. Si quelqu'un vous dit le contraire, ne le croyez pas. À partir d'un certain chiffre. Combien de temps? And that brings me to another scene that I didn't understand. So Corey goes to the same nightclub to meet the new fence, which is actually the police detective, and this woman comes up and hands him a red rose, and there's this real extreme close-up of this woman. And she Uh kind of smiles at him and hands him a rose and then leaves. And I was like, what was that? Yeah, I don't know. It... I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, red is obviously... Yeah, it was a, a red rose. It may just be because they wanted to get the color red in there and, and and kind of show, like, this is a big moment. This is an important moment. Yeah. is And red signifies that. And also, um, uh, the Vogel, the guy, after he's left to go meet with this new fence, Vogel kind of picks up the rose and looks at it and... Oh, thinks yeah. about and I get maybe that's what makes that him that triggers think, him to oh, go something this isn't right, right and I need to go and 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 fix it but right. uh, so maybe that I mean that's what I would assume I don't know if there's like a reason I I could I was also thinking maybe it has to do with like 
him quote-unquote like moving on because he he there's a which is kind of a trope is he has this uh he had there's a a lover right a woman that he had pictures of uh when he uh, went to jail and then they gave it back he doesn't want them anymore uh but he keeps them. i guess that was was that was the, the woman same, that was sleeping with the, the with, mob boss with the mob boss that and that was a really interesting scene because he kind of just you know struts in and he's the boss like he commands the room he commands this other person instantly right. and the other person kind of just does what he says like he's and i think that was also a good way of showing this guy is he's confident he's confident and people respect him you know he he's he can kind of he he gets what he wants right. from people and and then they have the woman the just, gratuitous nudity yeah that's <laughs> i i was thinking those exact same words i was like gratuitous nudity for no reason they don't even like she doesn't say anything she said, you know she's in bed the doorbell rings the mob guy gets out of bed answers the door Corey's there they have their kind of altercation she knows that he's gotten out of bed so she gets up to listen at the door at the bedroom door totally naked she's listens totally to the naked. bedroom door and that's it and that's it like i guess i mean it's definitely to show that it's the same woman right uh they wanted to show that i mean and she's naked and like I I and kind of stereotypically I chalk it up to oh they're French. <laughs> yeah. It's French and French and women, you know. It, like but it was it was it's obviously gratuitous. Yeah, it was uh, totally unnecessary because all she does is go back to bed and and he the gangster comes to bed and she's like I think she just says what's going on? He's like nothing. Go back to bed. Yeah, <laughs> she doesn't show up again, right. like, ever again. Yeah, she doesn't play any part in the movie at all. Yeah, you think maybe there's going to be something he's trying to get her back or whatever. Nothing happens at all with her again, uh, ever again. Um, I don't know if there are there other scenes or the, yeah, there are um, other things uh, for the heist section. I was definitely thinking of it. As I said before, in terms of like a modern heist, and a modern heist is, I mean, the when I think of heist, Ocean's Eleven. Right, I think George that's Clooney, most people think. Ocean's Eleven, is, and and it's it was interesting in a lot of ways because there in new heists, there's always a hacker, like that's like <laughs> yeah. the one of the key team members is. They have a hacker and they hack into the cameras or right. they do something. Obviously, no hacking, and they have cameras. So I was like, and so they just wear masks. They just I guess, wear masks, and it works. Like in George Clooney, they like never wear masks. No, but they have a hacker who can like hack in. And like also during that when they're breaking in, there's a part where they take out a map and they're like, it's look, like a hand drawn like map a, or like a, a yeah, or blueprints or right. something. Like they're like taking out a map of the building and like. If they would new modern movie, uh, heist would never do that. Right. I mean, like they take out a map and they are like a hand drop, or like any time in movies. And this actually happens quite a bit in movies where people say, "I'll draw you a right. map." Right, it happens in this. It happens in this, and it happens in a lot of movies. Because I know when uh, when the police detective is is pretending to be the fence, he's like, "Oh, where can we meet? I'll draw you a map. I'll draw you a map." <laughs> it's just like it's it's so. Funny to me, as Today. a modern viewer, to be like, oh, they had to draw a map. But 
but there another thing that happens that I think does still continue in today's heist movies. They they get to the they they're in the jewelry store. They've tied up the the security guy. They think all the alarms are, are off, but they but something there's always something sen- tends to go wrong, and then they wonder, well, what do we do now? And there's that last series of lasers that doesn't turn off right away, and they're standing there and they're not talking, but they look at each other, and you know they're thinking. Well, what do we do now? And then, of course, it's just a delay. It's just a delay. It's and a they, fake out. And then they get that you can see them kind of you know take a sigh, and then there's another little fake out where the sharpshooter takes out the gun, he puts it on a tripod, he's aiming it up, and then the last second, real quickly, he grabs the gun off the tripod, and the, the two other guys are like, "What's happening? What's what's it going to happen?" And he just he just shoots it without the tripod. Yeah. It, that was I, – I noted that moment. I thought that was a really cool moment. And it, yeah, and it's when we were like, what is he doing? Is he going against them? <laughs> right, is, exactly. Is, is he changing his mind? Or and it, it, But it's also a trope, too, of like we have the technology. You know, why did you turn off your targeting computer? Right. Like, no, he, I can do it. You I'm, know, I can do it by himself. Right. And he doesn't – Because so, they, they even show the, the hash, the whatever, the – crosshairs yeah of him lining it up on the tripod yeah and then he grabs it and then it's the perfect lineup when he's doing it just freehand and he does it which is like also a very typical moment it's not as like necessary in this but a lot of times they're like we can't the you know for whatever reason like you know even a computer isn't isn't accurate enough enough. so like this person needs to do it and so he does you know obviously he makes the shot and they steal all the uh, and like really, it's a jewel house that goes very well. Really. Right. I mean, they do it all cleanly. Don't say anything. Nothing the whole time, which is still very different than I mean. In, right. I in, mean, in 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 the modern heist movies like Ocean's Eleven, part of the appeal is the banter. Yeah, they're always like. They always banter. Yeah, the bantering, and also with modern technology, they have like earpieces, right. so they're like always talking with each other, even if they're not near each other physically. Right. And but, they can say something sarcastic to each other. There's, there's, a, there's, there's more of an element of humor. Uh, there really isn't. I wouldn't say there's really any humor in this movie. Um, I, mm, I don't know. I don't know if there's like humor. I uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's like humor, but it's not super serious to me. It's not uh, to me. I wasn't like, you know, on the edge of my seat. Well, no, yeah, I or, guess or I that like, either. or like it was covering really serious topics or anything. I I think it was, it was pretty light, really. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not. It's it's a completely different take. Yeah. on the heist and on the crime. And I do movies. think, I do think in some ways the. The heist and the crime and the whole plot is not really the point from of the director's from his perspective. I do really think he's making a movie in his mind about the nature of good and evil and human nature of man and or mm-hmm. men. Uh yeah, because that that topic just keeps coming back and back and back and back. I mean, the other thing is there's the that was a little confusing to me. The gangster's son commits suicide. I couldn't. I wasn't sure if he was dead, 
or whether he was just o- o- overdosed and and was still alive. Allô, docteur. Urgence au bureau 67. Tentative d'empoisonnement. Deux tubes d'aspirine qu'il a pris dans un tiroir. Mais nom de Dieu, qu'est-ce qui s'est passé Pour le principe, je vais ficher le track. Et après, je lui ai promis que s'il me donnait... Yeah, that was definitely a... kind of confusing to me. It was... And I wasn't sure on, like, did he commit suicide? Was Were the police doing something? Because it was definitely yeah. probably that the police were doing something to him to make him right. do that or to... Uh, and or, maybe that was the whole component of, yeah, even police are bad. Yeah, I think that's part... I think that was definitely part of it. Because I think even soon after that, maybe the police guy kind of has a realization where he's like, yeah, all men are yeah. bad. But also, I wasn't... I also wasn't sure on whether or not it was also that the son actually was involved in some sort of... That's the impression that I got. That this They picked up the son basically to get to the father. Yeah. Uh, and they were going to press charges on... They were going to make something up, essentially, to get the father to to squeal on on the other gangsters. But the son really was involved in drug dealing, and was was scared and of getting caught, and it, the implication was maybe one of the policemen was roughing him up or doing something or really scaring him, doing more than he need what needed to do, yeah, uh, and was probably doing something illegal, and so then the son, in a moment, took a bunch of aspirin or something that yeah overdosed on some medication that was there in the office yeah and uh, I, i'm not clear if he died or right. if he was just just sick and, and he it, needed to go right. to the hospital or I, i'm not sure and they don't really get back to that but yeah like it was interesting the the main investigator's reaction he was right. instantly like what are you doing <laughs> right. this like we weren't supposed to do that that wasn't the point of like this. you like and then i think yeah maybe he does you know, begin to understand what the... Because the other police officer is like, well, that's how we do things in our, you know, in, yeah. in our department. I don't care what, you, what you're what you doing. We're here to deal with this kind of thing. Yeah, and he... Because re- he goes back to the office and just kind of sits there. He doesn't really know what to say to the father. And I don't... You don't never really find out if he told him what happened or anything. It's just kind of like... Because then the plot moves on away yeah, from that. Yeah, but it's definitely... It is a noir in a lot of yeah. ways, and and that's you know a staple of noir is that human nature and kind of that hopelessness or that very pessimistic. I mean, that's why it's called noir right. a lot of times. And uh, yeah, and it, so yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's not just a heist movie, and right. and I think while Ocean's Eleven is a completely different movie. It is just a heist it's movie. It's just a heist it's movie. It's a very good movie. It's very yeah. fun, but it's just a heist movie. I think this movie is definitely at least trying to and, talk and, about And that might have things. been part of the reason I, I didn't, maybe I didn't enjoy it as much because I thought, oh, this is just going to be an interesting French heist movie. And from the get go, it's like, well, this isn't what I was expecting. You know, I, I was expecting. A little bit more action. I was expecting a little bit more um, of a direct plot from the beginning. Uh, there are things that I really did like about it, uh, but 
Um, you know, as a takeaway, I didn't love the movie, I'd have to say. Um, I I did like I, I'm not sure exactly where I stand on rating it, but it, it's in and you're right. They're like it classifying it as a heist movie isn't wrong. There is a heist in it and that is a big part of the movie, but that doesn't happen till right and halfway through, something like that. I think I think it's even farther than that, and and some of the things I read, the first thing that's stated is, it's famous for the twenty-eight minute silent heist, and 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 I read that after I I watched the movie, uh, but I think it's a little misleading to categorize this as yeah. a thriller. I mean, I would put it more as a rumination on the nature of man. I mean, it's not a thriller. <laughs> it's not a thriller. It, it It's a crime movie. Yeah. It's a noir movie. It is a heist movie. That's what I would, that's how I would describe yeah. it. I think it's in like, it. it's definitely like the heist is a part of it, but it's not the main focus. No. It's really about just these people. And, you know, kind of a slice of life almost right. of these people. It's an interesting slice of life. Right. But, uh, and, and like, well, Ocean's Eleven, it's all about the heist. It's all Start about to the finish, heist. it's about the heist. Right. And in this, I mean, they barely even talk about the heist. You don't know anything about the right. heist. Right, you don't. You, at the, you just know that there's some heist some heist that should be a cakewalk. I mean, that's kind of all you're told. The, the that's guy a, that's is all told you know. Is, I've got inside information. Easy, and then they don't, and then you know they don't give you more information until, really, they start doing it. I mean, like, right, like they so and so a lot of the movie isn't about the heist. No, it, it um, you're right. It's about the, the either the guys on their own and how they're dealing with life, or when they come together, and they're kind of silent interactions with each other. I mean, there's not a lot of talking. Um, then again, it's a lot of visuals, uh, which I keep saying that was kind of my favorite part of it was yeah. the camera shots, the angles, the look, the feel, uh, again, the clothes, the smoking. I mean, all of that, it just has a certain vibe that I liked. I, I found the movie as a whole, though not as enjoyable as I thought it was going to. Um, yeah, I... The visuals and and the the camera work were definitely something that I noticed throughout the movie. You know, as I said, there are so many little things, and and I've been watching some low budget, some really low budget movies, and that are good, but you can tell there's a lot of little things. Yeah. That like this movie is done by a professional, right. By someone with money, yeah. Because like just so many dynamic camera shots where just there's movement where they didn't have to be movement but it it just like these little things that right. make it feel really I more would cinematic. be really interesting to to watch more of this director's movies to see if if all of his movies are like this uh, you know or whether this is how he was going towards the end of his career and unfortunately as you said he passed away shortly after this one I know everything I read mentions the the Le Samurai as another yeah. great piece by this guy. It'd be interesting to see what that is, what that is, or what some of his other earlier um, films yeah, are. Yeah, I yeah I, I 
think his earlier films were not as noir in- influenced. Uh, also, I'm probably some of his early films were you know contemporary with American noirs, right? Um, and then also, like, yeah, they they don't have. Le Le Samurai is something that is a movie that I've heard of a lot. I almost watched it, uh, but I haven't. Um, and so, and I think that one's more famous than this one, at least to me. That's one that I yeah, I, I I feel like it is for some reason too. Um, those big the the actors in in this movie are big stars. I mean, they they've been in tons of other French films. Alain Delon, the the main actor, yeah. I know he was. A huge star, um, the guy that played Vogel, I believe, was in a lot of of the some of the spaghetti westerns with with uh, Clint Eastwood, and then the one that played the um, the sharpshooter again, another big star. I can't think of his name. Yeah, the main actor was, in some ways, kind of reminded me of like the man with no name in some ways because yeah. like doesn't talk. A lot, right? Just kind of walks in. He has these expressions that are uh, these very cool uh, noir <laughs> expressions. But I, I would say I would probably have enjoyed it if it was just a little shorter. Yeah, I, I feel like it was just a little too long. I, it it took me, like I said, the first. 30 or 40 minutes to me was like, oh, this is really, where is this going? I, I, I kind of wish it would have gotten into the, the plot more quickly, and I probably would have enjoyed it more if it was 20 minutes shorter maybe. Yeah. But then it wouldn't be the film that it is. I mean, obviously, maybe I'm wanting it to be a more of a traditional heist slash thriller cop and robber movie. That's obviously not what this is. It's not a traditional one, even though it has a lot of the elements of it. It's not what it's designed to do, uh, and maybe that's what I was expecting. It. I was just expecting a French new wave approach to the the heist film, and yeah. it's, it's way more than that. It's yeah. It, it's I don't, and I wouldn't say this is new wave, but it's it. Well, I I think I have a few more. Little things that I noticed, just kind of funny things, interesting things. And then I think we should get to mm-hmm. actually rating it. Um, um, some little things I noticed, like you never really know why they're even after Vogel or what he did. That's true. Um, or really even what the main guy did. I mean, no. you don't in, know. You I mean, know obviously you jail. just know he's involved with crime. Vogel was involved with crime, but he's so important that they like, get like an Hundreds. entire army <laughs> yeah. just to find this one guy. Well, and at one point the they asked the police guy who was escorting him, "Well, do you think he was guilty?" He's like, "I at first he's like, I don't know. You know, that's not up to me." And then later they're like, "Do you think he was guilty?" "Yeah, I think he was guilty." Uh, yeah. But, but they don't say what. Yeah, it's just like I that was just it was like it was kind of funny. I was like they just got like an army to find this one guy. I mean, guy. there are like a 100 people out there chasing him down with dogs yeah um another uh, thing that i thought was funny was in the police station office they have a phone on like an extender yes on this like uh um accordion type of arm thing (laughs) yeah and for no reason 
And he like, it's just so, I just thought it's just such of the time. Right. I, I've never seen something like that. The yeah. other thing that was, makes it way more like a slice of life. They deliberately show the police detective go back to his apartment and feed his cats. Yeah. Twice. Twice. They do it twice, and that was something that I thought was really interesting, and, and I was wondering, I was like, why... Why are they doing this? Is it to show, like, I mean, it does show certain things about his character, I think. I mean, it does show, I mean, he doesn't have a wife. He lives alone. He, he just has these cats. cats. Um, and, and also, every these type of scenes where someone comes back home and, and they're alone, I instantly think something bad is going to happen. Like, I, to me, like, when I see these kind of scenes, I immediately, like, the suspense, I'm like, What's gonna happen? Is he gonna turn on a light and the cats are gonna be dead, or like, right. or something's gonna be bad? And nothing or, happens. And nothing happens. He comes home. He greets his cats. He feeds them. He shaves. He starts a bath. Yeah. And he does that twice. I mean, maybe like, I mean, you know, yeah, it shows his kind of daily routine, or that like, yeah, this isn't special. I mean, it's just his day. Yeah, just and, a normal and, day. And, to yeah, him. that's probably you're right. But it was, it's an interesting choice to make. You wouldn't see that in a movie today no. of, you know, whoever, you know, the, the police that's trying to chase down some killer. Oh, we're going to show him go home and feed his cats. Yeah. And just like these little moments that's just like, yeah, not common in in movies no, in general. No. Um, and the last a uh, little thing that I noticed and is in like a lot of old is the main guy. He has a watch, and he yeah. he has the watch. I guess is that an old thing to like have the watch facing the inside? I, I think some people like wrist? to wear the watch that way, so they would just turn their. I think it protects the watch oh. from banging on stuff. Uh, you know, and and maybe especially if you're a criminal. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of like it was kind of cool. I was like, yeah, it's cool. They like flip their wrist over to look at the yeah watch. and i think i think that is a or was a common way people would protect their watch so and everyone wears a watch i mean even yeah. the, the there's the scene where the gangster at the very beginning gets woken up he picks his wristwatch off the the bed stand to see what time it is and say oh it's in the middle of the night or whatever yeah um, so I, again i found it an interesting film did i love it no, did I? I really liked certain aspects of it. The acting is really good in it. Yeah, the actors are really good. The directing is good. I just found it a little slow, um, a, a, a maybe a little too um, disjointed at times for me. From a rating, I I, I struggled with this. Uh, you know, from an artistic perspective, I I can respect it. From well, did, how much did I personally enjoy mm -hmm. it? I'd probably have to give it like a six and a half. 
Wow. <laughs> maybe yeah, I like, could stretch it to a seven, maybe. But I mean, no, I think you should go with yeah, what you think. I, I'd have it's, to say. It's, it, yeah, it's, it is, and that is an, an eternal struggle for me is, is the kind of, it is a good movie. It's a very well-made movie. Right. And I, and I, but like, if you compare it to like The Mummy or something. Right. Completely yeah. different. It seems odd that I rated the mummy higher than the yeah, film. and and or I don't drunken wa- drunken yeah. master. Or I don't want to. I don't want to say you're hypocritical, but you rated Spellbound. Wait, you rated yeah, you rated Spellbound pretty high. I think I gave it a just because seven. I don't know. I can't remember a seven now. or an eight. I don't. I don't. But I don't. I don't think I gave it an eight. I don't know what, but yeah, I I think. I think I gave Drunken Master an eight. No, yeah, and I think Drunken Master is... It's just... It's... This movie is... I don't know. It's like... It's really hard to rate this because you you think, well... It's it's so good in these ways. I'm really glad that I watched it. Yeah, I, I'm not... And I'm, I, I did enjoy it. Like, when I was watching it, I actually... I think I was kind of surprisingly engaged in the movie. I, I got engaged... Once Vogel and Corey met up, it it I really was not that engaged at the beginning of the film. Um, once they met up and they started interacting with each other, then I was like, okay, I'm more engaged because there was more happening. I mean, that's the bottom line is yeah. there was more happening. Um, and I think that first 20, 30 minutes just kind of, implanted on me is like I don't know if I like this movie. Yeah. I I'm going to rate it very different to you. Yeah. I'm I'm going to rate it in eight and a half. Wow. So you, I mean I I I could tell as we were talking that you enjoyed it more than I did. Um I I wouldn't I'd tell people to watch it. Yeah. Uh but I I I can't honestly say that I really, really, really liked the movie, um, especially that first ha- thirty minutes or so. Just, just I just didn't. It was just too slow, uh, yeah. to, for me. Once you you got into the city, once you were in Paris, and again they they were doing things. Even if it was just going to the nightclub, and you know, and you were seeing some of the machinations of the mob and uh, or the police officer, then I started to enjoy it more. Uh, but. Definitely not the fa- my favorite of the movies we've watched so far. Yeah, yeah. I I don't. Yeah. And I really like like. Well, I know this isn't a a new wave film because I really do like Breathless. I mean, that's yeah. the, really probably the only French new wave movie that I've watched or that I know well. And that is a movie I really really like. Breathless is a new wave movie. This movie is not a new wave movie just it's just not it's it's by someone who was involved right somewhat with new wave i don't know how much if i don't know if he actually made like made new wave stuff or it was just kind of an influence um and a contemporary but uh he i mean i think there's comparisons to breathless right. specifically yeah. Yeah. other new wave movies not as much. Right, and with Breathless, you have a similar theme. Yeah, of, I mean, it's a crime. Right, you've got a criminal and and, and so forth. It, it's piqued my interest on him as, as, as on the director. Yeah, and 
I think that's what a lot of these movies have done. So this is probably the we we've had the most not we've diverged in our opinions the yeah. most on this one. On this one and kind and, of the and album. kind of on the album not too. Not as much. No. But but yeah. It, yeah. So I mean that's going to happen. That's that's how it goes. So 1970 an interesting year for at least for the podcast with uh the um Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water and uh, The Red Circle uh, by, what was the director's last name? Uh, it's Melville. Melville. Jean-Pierre Melville. Jean-Pierre Melville. So I would still say to anyone that's listening, listen to it and watch it, you know, and, and make, make up your own mind. Yeah. I'm happy I watched the movie. So let's uh, quickly uh, jump in and, and see what our next year is. I've got the random uh, number generator up. I'm going to hit generate, and the year is 1957. So okay. we're leaving the 70s. We're leaving the 70s. I've enjoyed my time. In the 70s. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back with uh, the album and the movie for 1957. And we're back. So, again, the year for the next episode is 1957. And we are going to listen to the album Roundabout Midnight by Miles Davis. And the movie we're going to be watching is Bridge on the River Kwai. Classic World War II film. All right. Well, uh, 1970 was an interesting year. Uh, and uh, we look forward to discussing 1957 next time. Bye. Unreals and Revolutions. The end. That was long. Tous les hommes, Monsieur Matei. <laughs>